Welcome to episode two, where my co-host Ryan Rogers and myself, Isaac Brody, explain the connection between retail and social media. Episode one, Ryan was interviewing me, Isaac Brody, the agency owner, finding out the tactics, secrets, tricks that we use to help sell more products in retail. And I am super excited about this episode where we dive into Ryan Rogers, a former buyer at Target, about what it takes for brands to get into retail, what is the perspective from the buyer's angle. And, and this is kind of really why the podcast started. I just started peppering Ryan with questions when I met him. And just a little backstory, Ryan and I met um, at Edible Gardens, Ryan sits on the board of Edible Gardens, a indoor agricultural company, and Social Life, my agency, was doing some marketing for them at the time. We hit it off. We stayed connected. We were curious about each other's businesses. And now here we are, episode two of this podcast. So I think, Ryan, like, let's just give a short um, information about your background, and then we could kind of pepper you with questions from there. Sure. Yeah, we've turned the tables this time. Yes. Uh, I'm a former Target buyer. My uh, my career at Target was 18 years. Started in the stores in college and really progressed from there. Went corporate, uh, spent my entire corporate career in food, bouncing around at different departments as it's kind of how things go at Target. Stumbled into produce, uh, worked on the sourcing team there for a couple years really sourcing commodity fruit and vegetables and things like that. How does Target get apples from Washington to different distribution centers around the country, things like that. And then went into a buyer role where we, the company kind of merged the sourcing and the buying on our team. And I ended up on more of the value added side of produce, which is your Perfect bars and your once upon a farm bag salads, a lot of the non-commodity style produce. Started doing that and really fell in love with the emergence of the of the arenas I was in. So I was doing healthy snacking and plant-based items and things like that. More and more brands were coming to me smaller and smaller. I was working with really fun entrepreneurs like Allison Kane from Haven's Kitchen and Mac Anderson from Cleveland Kitchen and really started enjoying, you know, working with the smaller, more emerging brands. And after a few years of doing that and wrapping up all 18 years at Target, I pivoted from the buyer side into a sales firm, outside sales firm that focused on emerging brands. And then uh, about 18 months ago, went into consulting with uh mostly emerging brands and a lot of that in and around target. So still very target focused and um, yeah, it's been good. Do you have any brands now you're working with or that you've worked with in the past or like what would be a typical client that you would work with now? Sure. Um, yeah. I work, you know, mostly with emerging brands and a few brands trying to get in. I, I cover some food, I cover some health and beauty things like that um one of the brands i work with is chia smash uh a lot of you might know who they are they're, they're a great team i worked with them at my previous job so had a little bit of history there but yeah super fun up and coming brands 
Cool. And, you know, something I, I, I hear a lot about buyers and something you mentioned is like you were talking about you stumbled around from different positions. Like, is it true that like a, a produce buyer is not necessarily a produce buyer? The produce buyer could then be a health and wellness buyer or, a, you know, paper towel buyer. Sure. Um, each retailer is going to be different. Yeah. Um, and then I think produce is probably even more unique and maybe even some of the other fresh areas like meat and things like that, where industry knowledge is really yeah. helpful. And that's one of the reasons I ended up staying on produce, the produce team as long as I did, because they really wanted to build in a team of subject matter experts. We had leadership coming in from Safeway and Kroger and had a more industry knowledge than really a lot of Target is built for um, the term thrown around a lot is general athletes. So you cut your teeth in food and then go to diapers, then go to sporting goods and really kind of learn the entire store, which then makes you, you know, more in, in theory, more viable for leadership roles where you're going to, you know, rise up the ranks of the company, crossing paths with people from all these different places. So you're not, you know, so beholden to like one area of the company or one area of merchandising that you worked in. So I was fortunate to kind of land in produce and stay in produce, which was really fun. You either kind of love produce or you hate produce based on, you know, shelf life and supply chain and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And, and also like what, like, what does a buyer actually do? Like from my end, from the agency owner standpoint, I'm, I'm not too much involved in the sales, but I know you make decisions on if a product is put on the shelf, but that's kind of all I, all I know. Yeah, it's again it can definitely vary, more than that. Yeah, <laughs> can vary wildly by by retailer, right? If you're a buyer at a smaller, you know, store chain, if you're you know doing something like a, I don't know, something like ten stores like Central Market, you might have more areas, more items that you're covering. You might cover many more categories, or you might do the the pricing and the promotions and the you know deciding what goes on shelf you might run a whole gamut of things where target because of its size and its structure it, a lot of times there's different pieces are are broken off so when i was there i would focus on really the items that you're looking at bringing in so you're you're spending time looking at trends you're meeting with brands, you're going to trade shows, and then, you know, you're selecting those brands, you're managing your current assortment, um, pricing mm -hmm. is its, at Target, pricing is its own team. So you as a buyer are getting, you know, really direction in a lot of ways uh, from a different team, um, things like that, where- Managing current, just one, managing current assortment, does that mean you're deciding on like in your produce area, or buyers in general, what is like how many box lettuces to have versus how many carrot sticks to have? Yeah, some of it is the you know the the framework, um, you know, like the industry term is like a planogram. So you're looking yeah. at what your entire kind of 
current like if you're if it's a certain department or a certain segment <laughs> a certain segment of items you're going to look within that and go you know if you're running tomato sauce do you how many premium SKUs do you want how many how many opening price point SKUs do you want how many mid-tier how many different flavors of each SKU do you want one do you want multiple <clears throat> if you're Walmart or HEB or you know a place like that you might want a very very wide assortment if you're Trader Joe's you might only carry one flavor of something or two flavors of something um, so you're kind of really trying to figure out how you want it to look and then a lot of times you're you know or really for the most part you're looking at sales so how are the items moving are there items you need to take out is there you know a line of items you really like but the fourth skew that you have of theirs isn't doing very good so are you going to take that out are you going to have them swap something uh, what are they proposing things like that and when you say what are they proposing you're talking about the brands correct correct like are they are they proposing an item swap do they have new innovation they want to bring in and that's where a lot of uh dialogue around new brands might come in so as you're as you're pitching to different retailers is there you know is there something is there a current item on the shelf that's you know a, a brand that has six or seven SKUs or something and you're like well you know lop off one of those from that brand and that brand and you can kind of fit us in and you know we can get into some of my advice you know at any point in this pod but one of my pieces of advice that I always give is when you're looking at a retailer like physically go to that retailer or send someone into that retailer put your item on the shelf where you think it could live uh-huh. and take a picture and take a picture of the entire planogram or maybe that four sheet and show, you know, put that picture in your sales deck and show the buyer how you think you fit and where you think you fit and inspire them to, you know, really think about what that looks like with your brand on shelf. Oh, I really like that because from, you know, from a social agency, we're always looking to support our sales teams and that's like, we're in the stores all the time. And that is such an easy thing for us to execute that like could really be a nice part of a presentation that the, the sales manager is presenting to the buyer. So I, I, I love that insight. Yeah, um, you can even take that a step further. Like Target wouldn't be a good example with their kind of clean store policy. But if you're, you know, I don't know, like a smaller chain like maybe a gelson's or a, uh, a mom's organic market or something like that where you can put up some uh like point of sale type of material like work with a company that gives you like a small little bubble that pops off the shelf that says you know that is maybe some branding on it or like a fin that you can hang from the shelf and kind of advertise your product like mm-hmm. you can you can get creative. I mean, you're walking in there, setting it on shelf and taking a picture, you know, like you're in and out of there in a couple minutes. It doesn't have to be anything too crazy, but sure. um, you can, you can show that buyer how, you know, how it can look, how you want to drive sales in their store and things like that. And, and, and all those things like shelf tags and end caps, those all cost money. And, uh, right. And, and that's the buyer that's kind of selling that. Like, how does that, 
process work? I'm not 100% sure how it works in other places. I think, you know, I've heard at like Sprouts, maybe you, you know, you can, the buyer can decide what to put on those other retailer, larger retailers. You're probably bidding on that space with, you know, other, uh, other brands uh-huh. around the store and, you know, you're as a buyer or as a, a team that's deciding on that stuff, you're looking at seasonality and, you know, like, uh, that's just like summer grilling. So if it's a summer end cap and you have, I don't know, something a little bit more fall or winter, you know, related, let's just say like soup, you're, you might not, get placed on an end cap in the summertime if you're going up against like yeah. uh, grilling season with ketchup and mustard and hot dog buns and things like that. So a lot of it can be, um, you know, kind of variable. Don't sleep on gazpacho, by the way. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, when you're deciding what brands to bring in, how are those decisions being made. I know you talked about like skew assortment. So you want like some level of high, medium, low price points, but what else is there that brands can look to, to get into stores? Sure. Uh, a deep understanding by the brand of, you know, the space helps a lot. I think, are you, are you in a white space? Are you a better version of something else that's out there? Like if you think about like, justin's nut butters right like they you know they took peanut butter and they offered a better for you type of alternative Mm -hmm. and then absolutely cornered the market so are you looking at you know something that's a little bit more premium and it's better for you and it's got more it's got a better ingredient deck and things like that so you got to understand you know what the buyer might be looking at and considering within that space uh it might be, you know, how much space you're working with. So I had a plant-based set that was sometimes quite large, but I had to cover within a plant-based set, I had to cover meat alternative and dairy alternative and like Asian related items like tofu and things like that. And then you get into fermented with like maybe kraut and pickles. And so your the buyer might be working with like a very uh you know limited either limited space limited style so you you know you got to kind of gauge where you want to lean into um things like that places like what's the climate going on you know Mm -hmm. is there targets since covid has been doing a lot of rationalizing and 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 carrying more of a core assortment and trying to be a little bit more, you know, like a Trader Joe's and less like a Walmart or, you know, from a whole assortment perspective. So as a buyer, you're kind of weighing all that and then looking at your assortment, you know, if you're, um, you know, if you're running like frozen pizza or whatever, you might have like a small little better for you set because it's all dominated by, you know, Red Baron and private label and, you know, uh, other brands within that. So you might only be a small section. So 
you might have a really awesome, you know, better for you, you know, or gluten free or whatever type of pizza. But if Target's only got a shelf dedicated to that, or if Kroger's only got two shelves dedicated to that, then, you know, you got to have an impactful reason for being or reason to get in there. So does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's going to bring us into um, our next part of the podcast. We're really talking about, you know, what decisions and, and metrics matter to you. Um, so we're going to take a break for a minute and then we'll be right back. And we are back. In this segment, we really want to touch on what influences your decisions to bring in a product. I, I get there's price. Obviously, there's can, can the product move? I guess, how do you know that? So, I mean, let's start there. Is, I guess we can, is, is brand reputation, how does, how does that play into your decision? Yeah, I think it can kind of, kind of vary. I think you have all the physical things on the shelf. I think these days buyers are weighing a lot of D to C. So are they, is the brand selling a lot elsewhere? Are they selling a lot, you know, on their, on their own? Are they a top selling brand on Amazon? Uh, are they saturated in one market where you could test them? Are they, you know, dominant in Southern California because they're, you know, maybe very health and wellness focused, things like that. So you're kind of weighing all of those on top of like, do you have room on your own, on, in the, sh on the shelf? Do you have room in the, the set? Is there, is it like, a, is it bleeding edge? Is it in a white space you want to capitalize on? Is it, you know, a version of something that you you think is, you know, better or worthwhile. Things like so, that. Yeah. So I mean, I'm saying spaces you want to capitalize on, like how do you know what to capitalize on? Are, are you getting information from your office? Are you out in the field seeking out what's good or what's not? I guess Expo West, Expo East, Fancy Food Show, those things probably help kind of staying on, on trend. Trade shows, super helpful. You can kind of get a feel for what's, you know, what are you seeing a lot of, you know, like think about like plant-based, right? We just got through years of plant-based everything popping up. So if you were a buyer in anything that had a plant-based option, you were weighing that. How much space do you need? Do you want need a plant-based version of everything? Does it taste good? Things like that. So you're kind of you're weighing, you know, those things. You, I took a lot of meetings. I I learned after the fact I was more unique because there's not, not every buyer out there is just down to, you know, meet with brands all the time. That was the way that I would figure out, help figure out what the, what that kind of area that I was focusing on was, you know, what, what was going on, you know, you're using data. Like if you're in food, you might look at the natural channel. So what's, what's whole foods, you know, you're looking at competition, but you know, you're looking at, you know, maybe key things like in this, in my local market, there's a couple of really good co-ops. So you're, they're going to, a lot of brands start in a natural channel or in a co-op and then you're kind of going like, okay, is that going to be broad enough for a mainstream, more mainstream 
place where I'm a buyer or if you're a buyer elsewhere, you're like, okay, well, how does that translate? And then really competition. So I think I've brought it up on a podcast before, but I looked at like really interesting retailers and I shouted them out in our first episode. But when I was looking at plant-based, I was looking for best in class retailers and lazy acres in my mind is a best in class plant-based retailer. They had 12 feet and they had it really defined in those 12 feet. It was four feet of this, four feet of that. Well, I couldn't, I didn't have 12 feet, but I could kind of distill down what they were trying to do. And then you're kind of picking off some of the really interesting brands like in that set, and, you know, or, you know, Wegmans and Costco, what other retailers do you model after? What buyers do you trust when the, you see a brand on shelf and you're buying that category? It's like, okay, well, the Costco buyer is really leaning into this brand. What does that mm-hmm. tell me? You know, what do you think about this marketing tactic to get on shelf? Like if the targets, I'm, I'm using target, but this could be anywhere. Um, the target buyers are located in Minnesota. What do you think about trying to get a, your brand in these small co-ops or small retailers in Minnesota markets? Do you, because, you know, if, if you, I mean, that just makes sense. You know, you're kind of hitting the front lines. There's a, there's some, I'm not going to totally write that off. Cause I think that matters on some level, like in the Minneapolis market, if you're in, London Byerly's or Kowalski's or the wedge, you know, from a co-op perspective, that's going to lend some credibility and it's going to lend, you know, the itself to telling the buyer like, Hey, like this is, you know, something that a a more premium retailer is leaning into. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's time to jump on something sooner rather than later. Yeah. You got a way to like, are your are you sprouts and whole foods buyer where you want something bleeding edge and you you know you might be only focusing on the co-ops for me like i was target you know really tried to be a fast follower in a lot of ways so are you know you're trying to catch something that is you know maybe proving itself at whole foods and then catching that and riding that if you're you know if you're more mainstream if you're like a i don't know maybe a kroger or a kroger banner that isn't so leading edge you might want something that's like proven itself everywhere and you just want you want more of a sure thing it's like okay justin's this plant-based it's just you know cashew or you know nut butter almond butter it's selling like crazy everywhere now's the time let's jump on it it's a sure thing you know lock it in that kind of thing and, and bleeding edge is just like a trendy product like something new something like that's you hear it bubbling up like conversations around that would be for the bleeding yeah. edge. Yeah. It's, you know, maybe in its own white space or it's a super clean label version of something, but maybe it's really expensive, yeah. you know, where it might not work everywhere, but you can grab it sooner. And then the economies of scale, like I think about uh, like perfect bar was kind of like that mm. perfect bar when it came out was $5 and there's no nothing else in that set, but the buyer previous to me was like, I think this is interesting. I think the consumer wants this. Let's grab it. Well, now a perfect bar is, I don't know, a dollar ninety nine or two forty nine, and it's you know an everyday sort of item, but you know it takes a while to get there. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and, and I just want to touch on something you, you had just mentioned, like the buyer before me. To all the brand owners and, and CPG folks out there, how do you work with that transition? You had a great relationship with the buyer. You're cool. You're getting closer. And then boom, new guy, new girl comes in. Yeah, you you see it as a buyer coming onto a desk because you hear about, oh, we had you know great relationship with so-and-so. And I see it obviously now in my positions you're working with a brand and they're getting great traction and they have great conversations with the buyer and then they get promoted and move on to something else. And mm. it's, uh, it helps to have, um, receipts, you know, it helps to have yeah. written conversation maybe with someone or, um, you know, if you can get beyond that buyer to maybe someone they're working with like an assistant buyer or, you know, a director or someone else running the team that, you know, really falls in love with your brand, but it's definitely uh, a huge traction problem for a lot of brands, especially small ones that are getting close because the review timing can be so long. Yeah. I hear that a lot from brands we're working with that they're just like, ah, the new buyer came in or, and for me, the version is like a new marketing director or a new CMO client comes in who I've had a great relationship with. And then they might just want to, bring their own people in do, do buyers do that too do they have like their own brands that they like like how much of it is like this personal preference um i saw it a lot kind of within produce where you know you would there would be multiple multiple vendors who grow apples right yeah you know one vendor might really be awesome for Safeway, but might not be awesome for Pro. So you're kind of adapting it that way and leadership comes in and they have established relationships um, within a, you know, within the buying set, it's a little bit different unless you're in a category that's got a lot of a similar item. So you like, I've talked about like pasta sauce or maybe like the jams and jellies, you know, you might be someone coming in with like a, you know, a firm point of view on certain mm -hmm. types of things you want to bring in or things like that. Um, or maybe something you want to lean into or you look at what that buyer was doing and you're like, I'm going to, you know, press on the gas pedal on this, or I don't agree with this at all. And, mm -hmm. you know, all these decisions they made, like I got to go in and I got to just, you know, clean house. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like where this is going. So, that can be a, a huge wild card as well. And, and when you're talking about all these jams and jellies and pasta sauces, so many options are, are you actually tasting these products? Like how much of it is like, do you have a team at target? Um, I know I don't need to speak for all the other ones, but at are there like a team of tasters? Um, so to speak. Um, no, short answers. No. I mean, pre COVID you could, maybe get samples for the team uh, i've come across buyers who buy a category that they don't eat like they might be they might be a buyer for alcohol but they don't drink or they might be a buyer for bread and have a gluten allergy or something so it's definitely uh it's a thing for sure um but it, at the end of the day like sales are king so yeah. Like, obviously, you want the product to taste good. So if you're someone who's maybe not going to eat that, you need to at least, you know, have someone you trust to taste that. But 
if you're selling like crazy, like that helps. Doesn't matter. Well. Like, yeah. There's, I mean, we've all had, we've all eaten something on the shelf that is a huge brand everywhere. And you're like, why is this the thing? Yeah. Doesn't taste that good. It's like, cause they got a great team, great salespeople, money behind it. And you just supercharge it. And sometimes you, you know, you get lucky or, you know, whatever it appeals to enough people. Uh, and it takes off. And how much does like a dynamic salesperson like, or a, a dynamic owner play into the buyer? Like, you know, so many people, you hear this in the VC world, I'm investing in the owner, not, you know, less so much the product. Does, does that hold true? It does. Um, it's not, it's not the tip of the spear, but it might be the, um, the tipping point to kind of play in another analogy. Mm -hmm. I think it might, might put you over, you know, yeah. on like a, if you're between two brands and you really think that entrepreneur is on to something or, yeah. you know, like they're working with, you know, someone who's, you know, really great. Like I worked with, um, I took a meeting with Christina Tosi from Milk Bar and I knew who she was and I was a huge fan. And it's like, I just, in my mind, I'm like, I don't see her letting this fail. I see yeah. this coming in as something like really awesome. And so like that, you know, you, some of those times you see some of that, uh, but yeah, it's not, it's not going to be the deciding factor. It's not going to be the main thing, it. but if you're between things or you may be taking a chance on it, it's like, okay, I think there's something there. And I think this person's really going to be able to move the needle. Great. And, uh, you know, that kind of takes us into our segue for the next section, talking about the owner's personality and, you know, the topic that I'm most excited for will be about the social media and how that plays into velocity and getting on shelves uh, so we'll be back in a minute to ch chat about that. So we just left off talking about the brand owner's personality and that may, you know, might just put them over the edge. And now we're going to talk about like what role does social media play in getting in front of a buyer and, you know, of moving velocity and the buyer's whole, whole thought process. I want to just tell you one thing that we used to do and, and we haven't done it in a while is, you know, through social media targeting, we could pretty much target the target buyer on social. Maybe we can get that audience down to a thousand people. So let's say we were trying to target you um, on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok, wherever, wherever we think you play, we would... Go on LinkedIn, find out where you went to college, find out where you lived, do a couple other like searches, put that into, um, you know, approximate age, put that into Facebook or Instagram at the time we we're doing it on Facebook and Instagram, and then target you with tons of different ads about the product. Um, and we, what we were hoping for, you know, you never know if it works because you're not necessarily going to tell the buyers that you're doing that. But our hope was be, right before the meeting, you would have been seeing us everywhere 
on social. Uh, I guess, what's your take on that tactic? Uh, I don't want to call it genius, but uh, I mean, I could see the appeal. Um, I'd be interested to know if that was ever, you know, tried. Uh, we've tried it. Like, we've done it. You, I you don't mean like, like on me. Like, okay. you know, like I'd, I'd be curious to know if like, you know, um, but yeah, that's really interesting. I never, I never thought of it like that, but I guess that makes sense, right? Like you just kind of, you know, saturate the uh, likelihood that they're, you know. Yeah. So I think, I think once we start promoting this on LinkedIn and other places, I'm curious to ask everyone, have they ever done that? You know, what their thoughts on that are? Sure. Yeah, um, that's a great question. So with that in mind, are you as the buyer looking at social as for, I guess, social proof or is this brand going to move? How important is that? It's, I, I think the best way to answer that is it's evolving. I, you know, maybe you like, you're probably like take uh, like something where you're going to, if you're a buyer, you're going to do like a, a review cycle. And depending on the size of your retailer, that review might be larger or smaller. If you're a frozen buyer, you know, you might be waiting through hundreds of submissions on something and taking those submissions and then, you know, having meetings coming out of those, like you're, you're not going to look through the socials of all 150 submissions, right? Like if you're, if you find a brand curious, you might scroll to the page in the deck that they talk about their socials where, you know, the followings or what have you like. um, So it's, but it's probably becoming more important as with the, you know, TikTok coming on is like, how active are they on there? Are they, you know, really leveraging it? I think up and coming brands as a buyer, you're expecting them to be more involved and pushing on those things because you want your brand out there that you're potentially considering to be creating awareness about their brand and and pushing it to your consumer. Uh, I think my question, I think the answer to the question I'm about to ask is going to depress me as just a marketer, but has there been an activation on social that you were like, fuck yes, I, I need to get that brand in there or like just has there been anything where like you, maybe you saw something on social where like you reached out to them? I don't think so. Um, I know it. Not to say it hasn't happened. <laughs> I for sure. Yeah. I left before or really kind of before TikTok got huge in the last couple of years. So, um, and and I mean, you got to know your audience, right? Like you might be dealing with a buyer who's been a buyer at the same place for 30 years and might not be on social. So it might not matter as much. So you got to kind of weigh the retailer that you're focusing and uh, their potential you know, viewpoints on it. I think, you know, I don't want to step on any touchdown calls for later in this segment, but I think the, 
you're really looking for it to be leveraged after the fact, right? It's not necessarily to convince the buyer, it's to convince the consumer. And how is that going to translate to that? those people coming into the store that I'm putting this in and buying it? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, one of the tactics that, that we've tried um, was driving um, web clicks to the retailers, um, to the products brand page on the retailer site. So we're driving traffic to the skincare brand for Walmart. Are, is the buyer looking at that at all? Like how many sales are going through target.com, walmart.com of that specific brand? Or is, are you purely just looking at like velocity at the store level? That's probably evolving too. I think as your, if they're not looking at it and you can ask them like maybe prior to an upcoming review, if you're on shelf already, find out if they're, if they're looking at it, maybe even if they are bring an impactful number to them, put it on, you know, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a pricing promo. How are you driving sales, socials, marketing? Here's our marketing plan, but you should be telling them, right. You should, there's, that's a data point, right? Like you're going to hear from up most buyers who are just going to say data is paramount data is king data is what i need because we all want to know if it works and you know as a buyer who's looking at emerging brands data is harder to come by well is there something you might not you might be stuck behind the ke wall or a unify wall of sales data challenges and you don't have like a walmart or a whole foods or some maybe some sales data to really leverage is there something you can pull out of socials like hey we saw this much you know related to this retailer and really kind of you know use that as a potential data point when i'm so if i'm a smaller brand and i'm let's say regional you know so i have one sales rep in the northeast and they're hitting hitting up and then i spend a lot of my money advertising to people in the Northeast. Is that something a buyer would want to hear? Cause you could be brought in to the Northeast. Does it work like that? Yes. Is the short answer. Okay. I mean, again, through the prism of target, you know, will it speak to a place you could potentially be tested? So, Again, you'd have to, if you're sending in a submission, you need to, and we can talk about how this gets in the sales decks and the sales. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. People side of things like you need to then have a spot dedicated to, Hey, you know, we obviously are, you know, we're big in the Northeast. Well, okay. Yeah. We have the sales because you saw on the previous slide we have all these great sales in the Northeast for whatever that includes. But then when you get to the social slide and instead of just having a picture of your Instagram page that says, you know, 50,000 followers, it should say, you know, I don't know, 37 activations in the Northeast or, you know, something maybe that relates to the 
kind of marketing saturation or the social saturation of a certain area of the country. So it says not only like, are we selling there? People see it on the shelf. There's brand awareness, but we are also pressing on the gas pedal in the Northeast. Like it's worthwhile for you as a buyer of X retailer to bring it into that space because we are supercharging not only like it being on shelf and it being an awesome item and it tastes great or it looks great or it works great, but we are also, you know, really leaning in from a marketing perspective because we've done this work on that. And you have to distill that down to a couple data points or a, a narrative, right? You can't say all that, but it's like, you know, 8 million impressions in, you know, one post in the Northeast or whatever, you know, yeah. you got to kind of like, you got to figure out what that message is. And then, you know, really you need to be as a brand, you need to be working with Isaac and whoever your salesperson is or your broker for that retailer to make sure that that's in the deck and kind of ties it all together. So when you say in a recommendation slide, you know, makes sense to test us, in the Northeast first, because, you know, we're on shelf there already. We're in Wegmans or we're in somewhere else. And then we also have, you know, all of these social activations kind of coming in, coming in behind. So, yeah. And you mentioned data points too. And I think those are some interesting, like talking about the activations in an area to get them in. But the one pet peeve I have, and I know a lot of other marketers do is this data point that, about follower growth or followers being kind of the end all be all. And to any other buyers listening, there are so many more important metrics to followers. Um, at social, like we truly value much more of the total saves and shares. And when we're reporting, we're in a lot of cases starting to look into percentage of saves and shares um, as compared to total views. We think that's a much more intent to buy. We think, email subscriber list um, is a more valuable metric than uh, follower growth. But from, from a buyer standpoint, I know you uh, like haven't worked in target for a little bit, but was that still a thing for buyers? And then I guess even more like in the produce space and for edible garden, where you sit on the board when it's a very much like commoditized product, do you think follower growth or social media presence matters i mean i think this is probably the most important thing we take away from this episode right i think you there is a guarantee buyers aren't thinking about it like that but i think that's a really that's a way that you can really get your social team and your brands to really think about and to really train buyers on how to think about it like because to me, you would, you know, you're going to look at, you're going to glance at followers, right? Because that's going to be what you think is the most important thing. And I think it's really key to explain and create that dialogue with the sales team, with the retailers, like, hey, like followers are fine. Like that's an okay metric, but really that doesn't, that's not doesn't necessarily translate to the engagement that we're getting at the, you know, to your point, the, you know, the intent to purchase. And that's where, you know, 
as you think about building out a social page for your brand, this is where you should really lean in. Like, how do we explain this to buyers that, hey, we only have 25,000 followers, but 24,000 of those are going to go out now and purchase this product wherever we tell them to get it online or in store that they're next to. Like, that's that to me is more valuable. And when you're thinking about that as a buyer, you're thinking about, you know, the loyalty to that brand and the hive and that that is creating and how do you build on that as a retailer versus just like, oh, they have, you know, because at some point in time, the file, total followers number, you don't know really what's good or what's bad. Is there, you know, they're a, they're a brand in the Southwest and they have this many followers. Well, that sounds like a lot or yeah. that doesn't sound like very much. Like you don't really have a baseline, you know, like maybe if that's something you're really focusing on, you have this mental frame of reference from other brands that you've seen or you think about, or you think are best in class and what their followers are, or, you know, and some of that is based on, you know, how strong their social game is. They might be an awesome brand, but not have much of a social game. So it's, it's really kind of, um, incumbent, I think, upon the brand to really explain that to buyers and help change that narrative of like, hey, this is what really matters. Yeah, and, and hopefully I'm doing my part with this podcast by getting <laughs> in front of buyers. Um, so I think we'll leave it at that um, on that kind of major takeaway. Um, and guys, we, uh, guys, girls, we are going to have a bonus episode where Ryan is going to talk about some of the most stellar presentations he's seen and if there's any just absolute amazing emails that have like actually got him to open up um, and, and get a meeting. So Ryan, appreciate you, brother, and uh, we'll talk soon. Cheers. Thanks, everyone.